You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Hattie Mitchell, founder of Crete Academy, a nonprofit charter school in South Central Los Angeles aimed at serving students experiencing homelessness. Crete provides gifted programming, special education, enrichment, and a rigorous academic model. The Crete educational model focuses on the immediate basic needs of students and their long-term educational needs. Their goal is to provide resources and support services to every student so that they are successful. Hattie earned her BA in elementary education and teaching from Cal State LA, her master's degree in public policy at Pepperdine University, and her doctorate of education in K-12 leadership from USC. Enjoy the show. So welcome, Hattie Mitchell. Thank you. So I'm excited to have you here. Um, I went crazy on research, researching you and your organization and your school, because I had never heard of anything like this until you became one of our reimagined grantees um, for CDA, one of our community grantees, um, which was super exciting when I first heard of your school. And I couldn't wait to have you as one of our highlights because the work that you do and the work that you've done has been so inspiring um, as someone who, who myself has worked in schools and worked mm. with students who've experienced trauma, including, um, I think poverty is a trauma. Absolutely. Um, and your approach to education, your approach to empowering students who have experienced extreme poverty, experienced being unhoused, that to me is extremely um, not only inspiring, but it's powerful. Thank you. So when I found you have a charter school that you created um, with your husband yes, and uh, specifically to work with students who are experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. I was elated. So oh. I just want to say welcome and thank you for thank the work you. that you do. Thank you. I love the work that we do. <laughs> so let's talk about Creed Academy and how you even created, came up with the idea and how it began. Okay. So ever since I was a little girl, uh, about five years old, and we were talking about the um, owner of the studio being five and being in a studio. But I was five years old. And I remember asking my mom when I would see men mostly on the street with signs kind of on the freeway overpass, we'd get on the freeway or off the freeway, I'd see them with signs. And I could read at an early age. So I would I would read things like help, um, hungry, homeless. And I knew without anyone telling me that these people that I was seeing We're cold when it's cold, sweating when it's hot, scared when it's dark, and didn't really have any place to lay their heads and feel safe. And so I used to ask my mom, like, oh, let's give them some money. Let's give them food, anything. And she would tell me this, you know, that from a very early age, I just had a heart for people that were outside, that were unhoused. And so that really carried with me. Um, I grew up in the Central Valley, which is Turlock, to be exact, north of Fresno, um, high poverty area. It's an Im- it's an immigrant and migrant town, um, and my dad would always have us volunteer every year from about the age of seven or eight at Popeye's Chicken in Modesto, and we'd give out food and clothes to people that were homeless. And seeing those kids 
excited to get a scruffy used teddy bear and a piece of chicken um, just warmed my little eight-year-old heart. And so that sentiment of community service, but also just feeling like I was born with a heart for people that are homeless, carried with me as an adult. I moved here when I was 18, and I was like, let me get involved in volunteering. And so I volunteered at Union Rescue Mission. It was my first volunteer opportunity here in L.A. And um, when I got to Skid Row, I was devastated. I had never seen massive homelessness where thousands of people were living in boxes and under tarps and, um, you know, just on the sidewalk. And so there was a, a distinguishing kind of life-changing moment where I had finished volunteering and I walked outside the shelter and there was a woman sitting with her back against the shelter. She was about 20 years old, kind of staring off, just dazed. To my right, there was someone shooting up. I can I can still see everything vividly. There was a woman with a cart, a grocery cart rolling in front of me. There was a couple fighting to my left. And then kind of straight ahead behind all of this was just rows of blue tarps and boxes. And all of this is going on. And I remember some someone catching my eye. And so I looked down and it was this baby girl crawling on the sidewalk. She was like six months old. And I remember just feeling I was I was angry because everyone I was seeing was black. And I'm like, this is no accident. This is intentional. This is system this is systematic. This is unjust. And I'm not okay with it. But then seeing a baby girl who's in one of the wealthiest, most productive industrial countries in the world and cities in the world crawling on the sidewalk as her mother stares hopelessly out into the streets um, of thousands of people living homeless, it saddened me. And I thought, something has to be done. Like, how is this okay? You know, I'm I'm 18 years old and I'm seeing this and I'm like, is, is am I the only one? Like, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing? And we just allow it. Um, and you know, you don't know everything about the world at that time, but I knew something wasn't right. I knew the fact that everyone that I was seeing that was black wasn't okay with me. Um, and I felt like I had to do something. And so literally that day, which was 18 years ago, um, I said, I think if she gets a good education, she might have a chance. Like she just might be able to tap into her God-given potential and dream someday and do something someday. And so I dedicated my life to educating kids like her, partly because I couldn't do anything that day. I don't know where she is today, 18 years later. Um, I hope she's okay and made it. But really in her honor is Creed Academy. It's a school for kids in that situation where we are so intentional about how we serve our families in poverty, those experiencing homeless, homelessness, and particularly our Black families, which were over-identified in homelessness and poverty data. Um, and really the goal is just to put them in a position where they can, first of all, learn and then next, you know, thrive. Wow. Um, listening to you tell that story and watching you tell that story, because the listeners can't see you yeah. as you tell the story. Um, your voice didn't crack, but your <laughs> eyes are watering. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm tears yes. are literally streaming down her face. Now, mind you, said so this was 18 years ago. 18 years ago. And it still impacts you. Very much. And the fact that you said, you know, you don't know where that little girl is, but this is in her honor. It is. And this still drives your work today. And you haven't given up. You're still here. You're still doing the work. Um, and that's powerful. 
Thank you. And that's what I mean when I say things like this are inspiring because so many of us have these thoughts. We have these Mm -hmm. feelings. We have these, like, we see the problem. We see these things every day. And sometimes we feel hopeless. Like, what do we do? Because in that moment when you were 18, it's like, what do I do to save this little girl? Right. And you really couldn't save that little girl. But now you're saving so many other children who are trying to break the cycles of poverty in their own families. Because we know this is also generational. Absolutely. Right. And you raised another important point, the systemic racism that leads to these problems. Because it's bigger than even just one school trying to fix this, right? right? You're pointing out this is so large that we have such a huge problem in this country that leads to these issues. I think here in LA, it's between 35 and 40% Mm -hmm. of the homeless population is Mm African-American. But we're only- We're only- Eight to 9% of the- 9% of the population. population. Yeah, and we're declining. So so everywhere in LA, specifically LA, if you look at census data- the black population is decreasing. We're dying off. We're dying. We're going to prison. We're moving out, but we're increasing on Skid Row every year for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. It's the only place you'll see an increase in, with black people specifically is on Skid Row. And and that also makes me think of how high the rent is and the cost of living has been. The gas prices are going yep. higher. It's getting more expensive for so many of our families. Right. Um. And even if we're not moving out of L.A., we're getting kicked out of our apartments. Right. Literally right now. Literally, yes. And I'm looking at the fact that you now have this school, and I'm hoping other people are inspired to do the same thing from listening to this. We're looking at something that is so dire. Yeah. And here you are trying to, you know, make sure there's a space for the children Mm -hmm. to still get what they need in the midst of it all. And you don't just stop at the children. I, I noticed that yeah. you work with the family. The whole family. You work with the whole families because you see that there's a bigger picture That's here. That's right. It's more than just, hey, get this math and get this science. Right. In fact, um, part of your philosophy and part of what you guys do, you feel that, you know, in fact, you say on your website at Crete, we believe that learning best occurs when students' basic needs are met. Yes. Can you share why that's so important? Absolutely. So our model is basic, is built on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which basically says until you've addressed your most basic needs, which are kind of the low level needs, right? It's for food, shelter, safety, uh, belonging, your intellectual needs, your desire to reach intellectual needs, which are higher order, won't even occur. And so what that translates to is if I'm hungry, my brain is not ready to learn. My brain's not hungry for knowledge, it's hungry for food, because I'm a I'm first, I'm an animal, right? We're just humans. If I feel unsafe, if I have anxiety, right? If I have fear because of the neighborhood I live in, or because my parents got into a fight that morning, I am less likely to want to tap into my intellectual needs, right? Look, the need to learn math or or write. I'm more so in my flight or fight. I'm going to be thinking about how do I feel safe? And so that's where a lot of behaviors come from. And we know that. Um, we just did a whole training on Wednesday with our staff around like whenever there's a misbehavior, approach it from a wellness standpoint. And the first thing we do is halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are the first four questions any kid gets asked when they're disengaged, misbehaving, angry, whatever the case may be. Are you hungry? Are you tired? 
Are you angry? Are you, are you lonely, right? Like, do you just need some attention? And most of the time, it's one of those four things. Um, and so not until we address our basic needs and, you know, you don't hear that from educators. And I used to, we started the school seven years ago. And in the very beginning, um, I was a young educator, young charter school leader, and I was hesitant to say like, you know, we're going to prioritize basic needs before education. Cause everything you hear is like assessments and performance and all this. But if you work backwards and it's like, well, how do we get to that place? We, when you, when you're experiencing poverty and, and you mentioned this, like that's trauma in and of itself. And when you come to school, many times you're not physically, emotionally, or mentally ready to learn. It's not that you can't, you're not ready. And so if we don't address those basic needs to give you a meal, to give you a safe space, to provide mental health services, whatever it is, you're not going to reach your full potential that day, that year, or during your lifetime. And so now I unequivocally, without hesitation, will say we prioritize basic needs. And it's picking up across education. The district is kind of caught on to these wellness centers that they're creating, um, which is great because it's like you can't expect our kids to come ready to learn if they don't have some of these basic things that middle class and upper middle class families have every single day. And our kids don't. I love that. I love that for so many reasons. Um, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true, um, particularly in California. I know that, you know, they were trying to incorporate more of the ACEs yeah. um, and understanding the uh, impact. And by ACEs, for those who are listening, is the Adverse Childhood Experiences mm-hmm. Study, where they found that, you know, when children are experiencing adversity, um, it actually impacts your health outcomes as an adult. Yeah. But it also impacts behavior. Um, and it impacts like you like like you highlighted and you pointed out. And one thing we know um, scientifically is that when your basic human needs aren't met, you are actually operating in survival mode. Yes. And you're, which impacts your behaviors, yes. right? So if you're operating in survival mode, you're in fight, flight, mm-hmm. freeze, or appease mm-hmm. mode, right? Which means that you don't even have access to the part of your brain where you can learn and yep. absorb information or even have control Absolutely. of your impulses right. because you're trying to survive in that moment. So that student in your classroom who hasn't eaten, who's living an, an anxiety because mm-hmm. they don't know if they're going to even get food when they go home or if they're even going to have a place to live when they get back or they're, right. or, the, or they're in an unsafe space when they do get to home or if it's a shelter or depending right. or if they're going to be in the same space the next day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these things can impact how they're going to be able to sit in that classroom. Yeah. If they're going to be able, be able to absorb that information or the teacher says something to, to them that makes them feel embarrassed in the classroom. I remember um, mm-hmm. as a student myself growing up in poverty, um, and we, you know, we had a very, um, very rough upbringing. And I remember teachers making making statements about my clothes or my mm. shoes in front of the class. Mm. Now, I think in their mind, they're being helpful or but they don't realize it was humiliating. That's awful. Right? Yeah. And, uh, but uh, to give them, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more empathy even for my teacher. Yeah. Because I think in their mind, they're being helpful. Like, oh, right. I can get you some shoes. But you're telling that in front of the whole class, pointing yeah. out that my shoes are messed up right. when they already make fun of me on the playground. Right. Right. Um, and sometimes that, that impacted my behavior in the classroom. Of course. Right. So I'm fine. I'm shutting down. Mm-hmm. I don't want to learn any information. I'm, I'm, they want to know, why are you falling asleep in class? Because I don't hear nothing you got to say. You just embarrass right. me in front of the whole class. Yeah. Right. want to disappear. Or I disappear. Or I yeah. dissociate or yeah. things like that. 
So what you're saying is super important for learning. Yeah. And I think hopefully, you know, like you said, LAUSD is picking up on this and spaces are picking up on this. But I do believe that some teachers still need that sort of training. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Because the first reaction is get this kid out of my class. Yes. Because now you're disrupt. Either you're disruptive, as you mentioned, right? Like you might be doing things to call attention to yourself or call attention away from your learning or you're disengaged. And now other people want to think, oh, I can put my head down too and do what this student is doing. So that's a huge part of, of what we do is the training. Um, and it's constant. You know, we're constantly training on trauma-informed teaching, uh, wellness supports, how to recognize behaviors, how to get to know your kids, mm. teaching empathy, right? You may cuss me out on Monday, and if I don't know anything about you, that's going to piss me off. Right. But if I know your mom just died last year on January 31st from a heart attack and you're 12 years old in sixth grade going through puberty and trying to navigate life now that your mom has passed away, I'm going to understand why you might be a little bit testy and I'm probably not going to take it personal. And so and that's a real story. And that's a real kid that we have at our school. Hmm. And um, I think that the more empathy we have, the more understanding, the more training, as you mentioned, the more intentional we can be with serving our students. And it, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of intentionality. But what people don't realize is it's actually less work than if you try to ignore the kid or just put a Band-Aid on it. Because not only will they not be successful in your class, they probably won't end up successful in the community and in life. And they're going to end up right where the system wants them, prison, dead, or while they're a juvenile, foster care. Because mm -hmm. you're looking at it the long-term picture. Absolutely. Right? And, Absolutely. Even, and even if we look at it from, and I always, even when I do trainings with schools or parents and everything, something, I think sometimes we're looking at the short-term goal, yeah. which is how do I change this behavior right, right here, now. right now? How do I get this kid to be a robot and do what I want them to do when I say do it? Yeah. And as opposed to this much longer, let's be patient, let's be empathetic. Mm -hmm. It does take a little bit of time. It, it, takes, it takes, like you said, intentionality. And it might not get you what you want in this very moment, but you will find within a few months with maybe that year, yeah. it's actually a lot easier because now you have this connection. Now you yes. have someone who wants to listen to you, exactly. who trusts you, who trusts your advice. And now when you're at, you know, towards the end of the school year, you're like, wow, this kid really listens. They really understand this material better yeah. because they actually feel connected with me. Yeah. You're building that relationship. I love that. And one of the... Um, when you when you said like looking at the long term, when we first started thinking about opening the school, I was actually thinking of opening the school on Skid Row. And the more I talked to people that lived on Skid Row, they're like, there's no kids here. There's one shelter, it's Union Rescue Mission. And as soon as the families come there, they try to move them out like to the valley or to other places because they're like, Skid Row is no place for kids. It's no place for anyone, any humans but especially kids. So they actually made it a law that you can't have uh, kids experiencing homelessness like outside, you know, on Skid Row, and they will automatically uh, rehouse those families. But in looking at that, I was looking at census data and trying to say, like figure out, well, where, if we work backwards, like where are these families coming from that do end up on Skid Row? And 70% come from South Central. Yes, that doesn't surprise um, me. Yeah, it. It didn't surprise me, but the narrative oftentimes is, oh, they're transplant or yeah, transplants from like other states and people are coming to Skid Row for the services. And 
while that's partly true, the majority are black people coming from South Central. And so I was like, well, why don't we work backwards and try to get ahead of it, right? By serving kids so they don't ever end up, like if we can break the cycle with kids starting at four years old, and my vision is to go even younger. I want an early early childcare center eventually where we're getting you at zero and working with moms and babies in utero because we know what those outcomes look like. Um, but if we can start early enough, you'll never end up on skid row and you'll be better off than wherever your parents started. And so that's really like the end game and how far backward and forward we're looking as we address this monstrous problem. That's absolutely on point. I mean, that's why you're Dr. Mitchell, but because <laughs> I mean, you no. clearly researched on, it's funny because um, I not only know you have a doctorate from having looked at your LinkedIn, but <laughs> yes. because you don't, when I was researching you, you don't call yourself Dr. No, Mitchell. Just um, Mrs. Mitchell or Hattie's fine. <laughs> I didn't I, get it for the, for the words. I know, but I'm just listening to you and how well-researched you are. Cause that's what this, I'm listening to you and I can tell you like you researched all of this. We did. Um, but yeah, yeah, this is definitely um, important that we talk about the, the, like you said, the beginning of it. Where does yeah. it start? Where are people coming from? And how do we break these cycles early? Yeah. And how do we help and support this, uh, help families at the beginning? And I think yeah. that's extremely um, an, an important way to look at it, but also the fact that you're like, okay, I want to start addressing this. Not mm -hmm. just look at it. Not just look at the data. No. Let's look at the data and then do something. Yes, we have to. Absolutely. We have to. Everyone, I mean, the problem's so big, right? And if I look at the problem, I'll probably be paralyzed by the data and by the issue. But my thing is, everybody has something to offer. I think that, you know, whether you believe God or the kar karmic system or evolution, we're all here as part of a bigger system. And if everybody did their part and your part, who knows what that is, right? Only you know, it's something innate in you. It's your passion. It's what you're good at. It's where, where you thrive. It's where you, what we call flow. If everybody did their part, we wouldn't have half the issues we have in the world. Poverty, you know, racism, um, prison, the prison system, kids not being taken care of by their parents. We wouldn't have those issues because the system would be working. It's not working because we're not all doing our part. And I think a lot of times we don't do our part because we don't know where to start. It's like, like you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you see the problem but, and you're like, but what do I do? It's so big. Like, I can't fix homelessness. And I'm not going to try to because I'm one person, but I can educate 350 kids every year and in 20 years see a, see a dent because that's my goal. I want to see in 20 years. So I'm, I'm on year seven. So I have 13 more years. I want to see the number of black people specifically on Skid Row decrease because that cycle with some of us has been broken in South Central. They didn't end up there. Maybe they're not the president but they didn't end up on Skid Row. Mm -hmm. They're a contributing member to society. Less of, less of our black boys end up in prison in the, in the juvenile system. Less of our families are in foster care. When they come in foster care, we get them out, get them adopted or get them reunited with their families. Um, and less, less health issues. You know, all the negative data points were overrepresented. Mm -hmm. Heart disease, prison, gangs, violence, you name it, black Black folks, we're at the top. We have the highest rates of everything. And that has to stop. And it's not us. Like, it, it's not like Black people are, we're born a certain way to be predisposed. This is slavery. This is, I went, I went to Ghana last month 
and saw the slave castle where all of it started. And I, you know, right, you, you learn in school, you have the history. And even if, you know, we're woke and we've had all these conversations and we know where it comes from, but it's like, y'all, a, a lot of our culture, quote unquote, is not our culture. You preaching. Why you know, are you preaching? Hitting, hitting your children is not us. We don't. We didn't come from that in Africa. We didn't. We didn't come from that. That comes from the Portuguese who started the slave trade in Ghana. You are preaching. So, so we have to really, we have to redo and undo a lot. Um, and all I'm saying is everyone just has to do their part. It's a small part in a bigger, bigger system. And if we did that, we'd all be better off. Listen. You speak in my language. You speak in all my languages right now. No. And it's, it's the truth. That's probably why we're we're connecting on it's the truth. I don't even like I almost just I wanna jump out my seat. Okay. I wanna pay my tithes. I just <laughs> Because you're saying all the things that I feel like I say all the time. Yeah. I'm always trying because I teach trauma-informed nonviolent parenting. Mm, and I, I teach trauma-informed compassionate classrooms. And a lot of times I get told this is, you know, this is that white people stuff. This is not that I remind people, no, this is your stuff that was stolen from you. Yes. Empathy, compassion, listening, understanding. This was already ours. You were taught to beat your child because if I don't beat you, massa will and massa might kill you. Mm -hmm. And you need to pick this cotton to make this money. We got to survive. This is how we survive. Right. And we did, we were we don't know being nurturing is who we are. We're Revering humans. our children is who we are. Yes, violence is not who we That's are. That's right. So when you said what you just said, I was like, this is what I've been trying to yes. tell us. This is we've been doing this out of survival. If I don't beat you, massa will. If I don't mm-hmm. beat you, the police will. That's yeah. what I was taught. Right. And we've always been taught if you don't follow authority, you might die. Yeah. And we don't understand that's not who we are. Right. But we have to start challenging these things, these yes. ideas. And I love the way that you've developed your education system around this. Yeah. Like, no, you deserve love and compassion. You Everything. Don't, you deserve these things. And I think, and this is something else I wanted to ask um, in regards to even how you, the educators, and I always try to, when I when I do my trainings with teachers and even parents, um, or probably especially parents, is understanding your own traumas and yeah. the ways that you've been educated and how so many times we think the way we've been taught because we survived it, that this is the way to do it. Yes. I know I always say I have to move through you first, right? Yes. I know when I was in school, I was always, get in line, be quiet. I'm from here from South LA. Yeah. So it was, get in line, be quiet, stop that. This is how you educate black right. children. This yeah. is what I, I, when I worked in schools, this is what we did, you know, stop that. If you, don't, you keep doing it, I'm going to take it away. You never yeah. taught the children how to get along, how to compromise, right. how to meet each share. other's needs, how to share, how do we figure out, how do we get each other's needs met at the table? You never taught that in our schools. Mm. When I was doing um, teaching preschool in Redondo Beach, that's what they taught me, mm-hmm. how to do that with the children. They learn mm-hmm. how to negotiate. They learn mm-hmm. how to figure, figure these things out. Rock, paper, scissors if you have an argument. Exactly. How to how to how to deescalate. Yes. Because you think that they let me scream at their children? No. No. Absolutely not. But they scream at our children oh, all yeah. day, every day. Because they're getting them trained for the and juvenile really, justice system. And they really believe that's how... The only way to speak to black kids. And it's exactly true. Is, is to yell, raise your voice, because they won't listen otherwise. And that's literally what that's the what teachers would teach tell you. me. They would tell me I this. Know. They won't, you got, well, black kids, you got to do this to them. So I'm very curious on how you train your teachers, you know, mm. when they, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have a screening and vetting process, but I'm, I know, but we've also had our own experiences that sometimes the children might trigger us. So I'm curious to oh, know yeah. 
how you work with your educators yeah. to um, support them as they're working with your children who also are having coming in with their traumas mm-hmm. so i know people can trigger each other absolutely so i mean first and foremost i always tell people i can teach you skills i can give you tools to do a better job or be good at your job i can't teach you to love our kids you either will or you won't you either have it or you don't and so one of the very first questions i ask is tell me what you believe about children and it's an open-ended question right so you can answer it any kind of way now, we're in a educational setting, so most people will answer around learning, et cetera. But what I'm looking for is, and I shouldn't even say this on a podcast because then someone's going to give me the, the right answer, um, but I'm looking for someone that believes all children can learn and all children deserve to learn. Anything and anything in between and along those lines, that this is a right, that it's not a privilege, that they don't have to do anything to earn it, um, and that they're capable. Because I can't have you with a with a closed or um, minimal mindset. I need you to have a growth mindset, right? Open mindset that with the right tools and supports, any kid can learn. And it's true. The brains in Beverly Hills are no different than the brains in South Central. In fact, we're far more resilient. We're far more disciplined because we have to be. And we're far more street smart and have, in in general, more common sense because we've had to navigate things. You've right? had to, yes, very um, early. But, but the brain, the intellectual, the IQ, 10% of the population is gifted, right? Like high IQ. That's across the, the world, the globe. There's still 10% in South Central. There's 10% in my school, right? Everywhere. The, the smart gene, the benefits, what have you, wasn't withheld because of poverty. That's not how it works. So I'm really looking for people that have that philosophy. Once you have that, we can work out the rest, you know, and the training, and we actually introduced it this year. We're getting trained in six sessions from CCEJ, and they focus on um, our own racial biases, our own microaggressions, you know, all the all the diversity stuff. And what's interesting is historically, so 60% of our staff come from South Central, um, majority are black. And majority are black women, and we have a very high population of black men, which is unheard of in education. Yeah. The statistics around black educators that are male are 2% from zero to grad school. 2% of that entire teaching population in the country is black men. So they're unicorns already. And we have we have two black male teachers. Our dean is black. Our coaches are black. I mean, we have several black male staff, which we're really proud of. But I say that to say... We have just begun unpacking and being trained year seven, um, but it's never it's you know never too late when you know better you do better right Maya Angelou um, to really unpack our own biases and people don't realize like you can be a person of color and be racist you can be a person of color and have biases right and internalize self hate exactly and we've never done that because most of our staff, like we have a very small population that's white identifying and everyone else is a person of color. And so we're just like, this is our community. Like we don't need to be trained on, you know, not to be racist or biased. And so we're leveling up um, on that particular piece. And I'm really excited about it because what we are going to see is that, oh shoot, like there's, there's a lot of things that are race, racially motivated that we do, right? There's a lot of things we've learned that have been done to us that probably aren't best for our kids or even for us, right? Where how you said it has to come through you first. I really, really love that before you can kind of share that with others. And so 
Um, even in my own journey, you know, my dad's black, he's from Alabama, my great grandfather. So his grandfather was the last sharecropper in our family in Alabama. And so, you know, sharecropper, you're not quite slave, but you're still, you're still under master's control. And so a lot of the issues from slavery and from the South showed up in my childhood and in my upbringing, like we were beat, you know, not, not disciplined, not patted on the bottom with a hand, but like beat, you know, with stuff, with a belt, with getting welts, getting bruises. And as I grew up and became more educated, I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think my dad meant to do that. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, and for me, when, when you said like, that's that white people stuff, when I think of that white people stuff, I think of what they did to us in slavery and I want nothing to do with it. Mm. So if it came from slavery or can even be traced back like boy, how we say boy or girl, I don't even, I don't, I won't utter those words. I will say you by your name, queen, beautiful, handsome. I love you. I'm not, I'm not calling you no boy, no girl. I'm not putting my hands on you ever. I have four kids. I've never touched them Mm. ever. And I won't because that comes from slavery. That's that white people stuff that I'm not going to be a part of. So really, the training is really important, just going back to your question. Um, but we're diving into an, an, an even deeper level because there's so much there as people of color that and trauma that we need to deal with so we can be better for our kids. I love that. And I love that point around um, black male teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I, sh I see this question a lot on social media. It's, it's a meme even at this point where they say, how many black male teachers did you have growing yeah. up? I'm sure you've seen that. None. Um, you had none. None. You not until college. And he was from Africa. Wow. So that's different. You know, I actually, yeah, it's not until no black not American. African American. Yeah. And so I had, uh, I actually had a good number, but my first school was founded by a black man. Okay. It was a private school though. Oh. Um, in Pasadena. So you're lucky. Yeah. I was very lucky. Yeah. And so what a I, blessing. Yeah. I was very lucky. Um, so I had quite a few, but most of them were women. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, but I mostly went to black schools and had mostly black teachers. I think my parents were also very intentional. Yeah. So I had, so I was very blessed in that regard. But I'm also, but I also always want to encourage and always talk about this. We don't highlight enough the importance of having black men um, in our communities, in our schools, yes. in our community centers. Um, so I know for me personally, um, our a council member who's this podcast is uh, belongs to Marquise Harris Dawson. He was one of my mentors mm. when I was in high school. I had a father who was mentally ill, who has mm. got a lot of things going on. He was very physically abusive. Mm. Um, and if, I feel like if it wasn't for people like the council member and for other people, uh, other black men in my life yeah. who were mentors to me, educators and things like that, I would have fear and issues around black men. So for it was sure. black men in my community, at my church and things like that that helped me be the woman I am today. That's beautiful. And so I think we we don't need to underestimate their role and they don't need to underestimate their role in our community. So the fact that you're putting that effort even in your school yeah. is extremely important oh, yeah. for the young people in our communities and our schools. So I, I want to commend you for Thank that you. and that work because the fact that you know this and that's intentional um, it should be highlighted and commended. So thank, thank you for you. that. I mean, I, I, I'm a fan. I, once I learned about your school, I've been a fan. I've been but, here fanning out this whole time. But thank you. What were you but say? that's systematic too. Um, that you know, when when we were when we got here on the slave ships, what did they do right away? They separated the men from the women and children, because if you take the man out of the home, you're taking a sense of security. You're removing. Um, it makes me emotional. 
You're removing the, the fabric that holds the family together. Not that a woman can't do it, but let's be real. Women and men are different, right? Biologically, psychologically, emotionally, we're different. We're intended to be different. We serve different purposes on this earth and in these families. And so once slavery ended, we went to Jim Crow. Now how do we remove the man? We arrest him or we kill him. And that's why over 70% of the prison population is black men. And most of our black fathers, 80% of our kids right now at Creed Academy don't have fathers. They're either deceased, they don't know who they are, which is remnants of slavery, you know, not being there for your kids. That's not who we are. No dad wants to be away from their kid. That's what they grew up with. Mm -hmm. That's what they see. Or they're in prison. And it's so systematic that... Everything, you know, we do, when I, when I recognize that this is a systems issue, the way I combat it is to make sure I do the opposite with our kids. And so having the black males, it's, it's so intentional. It's like, let me find more black males that want to be in, ed- in education. Let me convince them to be in education, show them the power, because we don't see it enough. And these black males at our school, as you mentioned, like, they're, they're mentors, Their kids want to call them dad. They'll ask if they can call them dad. You know, I don't have a dad or my dad passed away or he's been in prison my whole life. Um, And and again, like, that's just not who we are. That's what the system has done to us. And one thing I always say is, you know, people, my kids especially, well, it's, it's not my fault, blah, blah, blah. Why do I have to do blah, blah, blah? And I'll say it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility Mm. to fix it. This isn't our fault at all. Right. But it's our responsibility to fix it. It's we got- can we can keep blaming, but if we blame and don't take responsibility and do something different, it then becomes our fault. Mm. Because we can't control what's done to us, only what we react to and how we respond. Right. And also I don't have the expectation that the people that cause it are going to fix it for us. No, they I- want this to happen. <laughs> they, I just don't have This is how it's supposed to go. This was the yeah. system. Well, my husband always says, you see what happened was they thought they were going to bring us over here. We were going to build the country and then that we were going to die, but we lived. So now they're like, what do we do with them? <laughs> we imprison them. We try to kill them. We put them in poverty. I mean, the black population, as I mentioned, we are declining. If we don't do something, if we don't all do something, we will become ex- extinct, at least in America. So we have to, we have to respond. And we some resilient folks. We are. That's why we lived. We lived, we lived through, I mean... Man, when you learn about the slave trade, it's it's life changing. It's like I I would have jumped because I can't have anybody telling me how my life's gonna go. I would I would have been one of the weak ones. I would have jumped. But you these think people. That, but I'm listening to you and your story and what you've done. <laughs> and I we didn't even get to all the things because I, I want to talk about more about your academic. We don't even we're running out of time. But you know, I, I, there's so many things that listen. Y'all guys gotta go to the website because all this a lot of stuff is on the website that yeah. I want to talk about too. But we talked about so many things that were deeper that aren't on the website. So that's that's good because I, I wanted to talk about the word Crete and yes. how it means create and that it's an acronym for character excellence. Responsibility, responsibility, equality, equality and, and teachability. teachability. I wanted to get into all that, but that's on the website. Yes. I'm going to have to get into all that. Because um, <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, because there's just so much to talk about, because you guys are so thorough Thank in you. everything. Um, the academic stuff is really, it's, it's as important as that is. I think yes. the, really the depth of why you do what you do is so much more important, because I think that's 
where um, the heart is. Yes. And I, in listening to you, she's been tearing up. I know, I know. sometimes the list, sometimes uh, my guests don't like it when I tell the listeners that you guys are tearing up, but I'm going to tell, okay. I have to tell them because I feel like they need to know how much sentiment is here yeah. and the power of what you're doing. Um, I didn't even get into the fact that, you know, how you started the school and you and your husband sold your house. We did. That's how passionate you are. And maybe a little crazy. <laughs> I don't think it's crazy. But yes, we didn't have we didn't have any funding. And so I was like, well, let's sell our house. And we used the equity to start the school. And it was all worth it. But that's how much you are um, passionate about what you do, but also how sincere. Invested. Invested. There we go. Literally. Invested. Financially <laughs> invested. So, um, it, and our kids all go to our school. My son just graduated sixth grade and is now in seventh grade. And we don't have seventh grade. But my other... Two are there in third grade in TK. And then my baby who's in daycare will start TK next year. But I always told my husband, we have to be fully invested. Like, how is how is a school good enough for your kid but not mine? Mm. What do I look like starting a school and sending my kids somewhere else? And I've seen that a lot. People start schools and their own kids don't go. No, so my, kids, my kids go to my school. So you start with transitional kindergarten. You go up to sixth, sixth grade. grade. And we're looking to add seventh and eighth next year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then next thing I know, y'all going to have a high school? You're probably no gonna... high school. No high school. No high school? But we'll go backwards to zero. Zero to three. Okay. I really want to so do you that. Go, so she's not going to have a high school. So anybody listening who's inspired yes. by hearing her story... I want y'all to start a high school. Yes. Then she can feed y'all, her kids, to your high school. (laughs) So um, do you guys have any um, events coming up or any programs that you guys have coming up? Um, Our next event is is next month, Latino Heritage Month. And um, it'll be just a school event, but we'll be highlighting all of the uh, music and culture of our brown community. We have a large Latino population, so we're really excited about that. Um, And that's next month. Awesome. And you guys are actually one of our Council District yes. 8 Reimagined Fund community grantees. How have these funds been able to support your work in the events that you guys have going on? So we, uh, I applied, I guess it's been over a year, a year and a half, um, specifically because we want to find our own facility. And so the funds have been used to develop a committee, which is some board members, a real estate agent, a real estate investor, um, and a consultant to help us identify and secure our own facility. So that's a big, big goal, obviously. Um, and I always tell people, like, what you see, what you've read on the website, we're like 40% of what the vision is. We want a school adjacent to or embedded within a housing community. We want a restaurant where parents work and serve three meals a day to students, but it's open to the public. We want a doctor on campus full-time in a physician's office. We want um, to be a learning uh, community with research, so researchers around mental health as well as mental health services. And I want a dentist um, that's full-time doing cleanings. And so I don't want, I want kids to not have to leave to go to a clinic on a bus, which takes all day, and you may not even be seen. I want them to be able to do everything in their community with their school right. um, and have families, teachers, living on campus as well. So keeping, which is great. I, there's, I can think of so many things. So that's what we're using the grant for, Yeah, is to plan strategically around this concept, this the full vision, and to have people in place um, to make it come to fruition. 
I think that's a brilliant idea. I think, honestly, that's a brilliant idea for almost any school. Because yes. I think about, like, that way parents have to take off from work the mm-hmm. whole day. And because not of our families can't afford to do that. Right. Um, and then some parents are actually employed by the school, it sounds like. Exactly. And then the teachers don't have to commute from way far exactly. out. Because so many teachers can't afford to live in L.A. They have to commute from far mm-hmm. out. Um, which, and it's a true community. Yeah, and it's, it becomes a real yeah. community. I mean, I can think of so many reasons why that would be ideal. And yeah. I think I really, um, I believe that that's going to happen. It I believe is. you guys are going to make that happen. Someone out there listening, huh? Yes, exactly. Come, so Come partner alongside us. We so how partner. can people support you? So, I mean, one, m- money always helps because we get about $9,000 a student from the district. But if you look on the CDE website, there's a calculator. We spend 14000 on our kids, which I'm really proud of. And that money's not coming from public funds. We're fundraising that. Um, but our kids have more needs than other kids. And so that's why. Um, so donating at our website uh, through our PayPal account is one way. We always accept volunteers, mentors. Um, we're looking for enrichment programs all the time to enrich our kids' lives which I didn't even get to talk about our study abroad. We went to Greece in April. Last year, we went to Spain and Italy. This year, we're going to Japan. That's all funded by private um, donations. So we're we're taking kids like literally out of their world and introducing them to a whole new whole new world. <laughs> I never had a school take me nowhere other than the zoo. So I would go to the zoo too. But <laughs> the zoo's important. Yes. But I also yeah, never no, been out, had, out of the country with the school. We had 16 kids in Greece. Uh, we went to Greece and Turkey for 13 days. Wow, yeah, that like is amazing! In April during spring break, it was it was amazing. So donors know that your money yes. is going, going to be put to directly to the kids. Great, directly use. to the kids. Um, and then just looking, we're looking, you know, for a property because we want to secure our own facility. We want to build it out, um, and a housing developer, you know, to come alongside us and develop the housing portion. I love that. Thank you. Where can people find you? Uh, 6103 Crenshaw, corner of Crenshaw and 60th. We also have a site at Budlong, 5940 Budlong, 60th and Budlong, or www.creedacademy.org or create underscore academy is our social media handle. Awesome. We'll have that information available for you in the show notes. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Dr. Hattie Mitchell. I know she didn't like that. <laughs> you could just but- call me. <laughs> She blushes when I say that. But um, I appreciate you so much for coming. Um, thank you for the amazing work. Thank you for the sacrifice, the investment. Yeah. Uh, shout out to your husband for his great work as well. Um, so I know you guys founded it together, but I still want to give him a shout out as well. Thank you. Um, and to the educators in your uh, at your school. I know they're doing great work as they well. Are. And to all the families and students. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.